Hey, well, good morning. My name's Eric. Uh, I work with our students and with our life groups. We're so excited to have you be a part this morning. I want to say a quick welcome to uh, Life Church family. Thanks for being a part. And then also another welcome to those of you, maybe somebody shared it with you and said, hey, we're in this really cool Can I Ask That series where we're dealing with some of the more difficult questions about life and faith and belief and stuff like that. So maybe somebody shared it with you and you subscribe to No Religious Background. Maybe you subscribe to some other religious background um, other than um, Christianity. Well, we want to say welcome to you this morning. I'm so glad you're a part. If nothing else, what I'm really hoping for is that uh, we can at least understand one another a little bit better. Maybe, hopefully, if you keep an open mind, and I hope that you do, I hope that you stick with us for the next 30 minutes here, because I'm really hoping that I can kind of bring down some of the barriers for you that maybe have stood uh, between you and the Christian faith. Or maybe you and religion, maybe you don't um, subscribe to religion at all and you're going, man, that's the furthest thing that I even want to be a part of. Well, I hope I can bring down some of those barriers for you this morning. And so uh, our can I ask that question uh, is going to come to us like this this morning. It's exemplified. I'm going to use an example from some of the questions um, that I've gotten from people, some of the conversations I've had with people in the past that go something like this. Uh, with coworkers or friends, and, and uh, we end up having some conversation, and we get to the place where I, I'm able to kind of ask them about faith and what they believe about the afterlife or what humans should or shouldn't do and um, what they believe you know, about the spirituality of human nature and whether that's something they believe in or not. And, and uh, so we start talking about faith because everybody has faith. Everyone has some sort of belief as it relates to those things, and those are religious claims in nature, what we should do, what we believe about the afterlife, what we uh, believe relates us to God, or if there's no God. All of these are religious questions. And so um, I, I might ask these people something like this. What do you believe like gets you into heaven one day? Or maybe what do you think would make you right with God in the end? Or, or what do you think would actually bring you into relationship with, with God? And, and so as I ask those questions, we get uh, oftentimes a response that goes something like this. Well, I think, Eric, that we just got to gotta do whatever we think uh, is best. We have to just believe sincerely and do our very best uh, in, in pursuing those beliefs. And if we do that, we'll get to God in the end. We just got to be sincere, do our best to do what's right, and we'll get to God in the end. Or I think the clearest example came from a conversation I had with a young Christian who said something to me like this. He goes, Eric, I think it's narrow-minded for you to say that Jesus is the only way. How can you be so exclusive like that and say that Jesus is really the only way? I think that's pretty narrow-minded. And so our question this morning is, is Jesus the only way? Are there multiple ways to God, or is Jesus really the only way? And so I hope that I'm able to answer that question, and I'm also hopeful I'll be able to answer, um, hopefully, some of the questions that are underneath the question, the subset of questions that come out of this conversation, because there are many, and I'm certainly not going to be able to handle all of them, but we'll do our best to tackle um, some of the most important ones. And as we start this, though, I want to start by exploring why this is such a common belief in our culture, because there's plenty of other parts in the world where this is not a common belief. There's plenty of other times in history where this is not a common belief. Why is it so rooted in 
our culture in particular, that we have to say there are multiple ways to God. Well, I think it stems uh, uh, largely from a misunderstanding about what tolerance is. We say uh, tolerance is, you know, that all beliefs are created equal and that, you know, that you have to consider all of them to to be valid. And if you say that your beliefs are true while another person's beliefs are not true, well, that's acting intolerantly and that's being bigoted to claim. That's that's acting in a bigoted sort of way to be able to say that your uh, belief system is true while another's is false. Um, But I just don't think that that's an accurate representation of what tolerance is. I think that you can actually love someone and disagree with them. I think that you can even disagree about these things without looking down upon somebody of different beliefs. And hopefully I'll be able to show you why. And I also think that what we're doing here is we're just... We're using reason, we're using logic to be able to weigh the coherence of a set of beliefs. Um, haven't you said to somebody in the last couple of weeks or last month, I, I bet all of us have in some form or another said to someone, well, that's not true. That's not the way that happened. See, what are you doing? You're using logic, you're using reason to weigh the coherence of whatever it happened. And so you were able to say to someone, that's not true. But somehow when it comes to religious belief, we give it an exemption card and say, nope, it's all valid. It's all true. And I just, I just think that's, I think that's silly. I think it's silly to be able to do that. We're using reason to weigh the coherence of a set of beliefs. So when a religion claims this, it says that Joseph Smith received a revelation um, to restore the, the church of Jesus, that the current church representing him that I subscribe to, the Protestant Christianity, had strayed and it needed to be restored through him. Well, that is a, a, a truth claim that has to be weighed to be credible or not, probable at very least, or not probable. And uh, so because of that person's uh, credibility, later revelations that actually contradict what Jesus said, and later actions, I think that we can actually show that belief system to be not probable and, and, and show that there are several beliefs within that that are not true and not credible. And so we have to weigh these things. Or when a religious uh, worldview says that Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet, well, that's a religious claim that has to be weighed along with their belief that Jesus wasn't even crucified. Well, Christian and non-Christian historians, historians and scholars alike believe firmly that, that Jesus was a person who died on a cross and really was crucified. Like, this is a firm uh, truth that we can show to be highly probable. And, and, and so we have to weigh these things. It can't both be true. Or when a religious worldview such as uh, Buddhism claims that there is no God, and uh, thus they have no moral grounding for their supposed high ethical standards, um, well, that has to be weighed because I think we can show that the existence of God is highly probable and that he is our objective standard for morality. I think that we can show those things to be far more reasonable than, than not. And so what are we doing? We're weighing these things to see if they're reasonable or, or not. And don't you see also how religious... Um, Religious claims are mutually exclusive. You know, one will negate another. They can't all be true because one will negate the other. If they're mutually exclusive, all of them cannot be true. And this has nothing to do with somebody's sincerity of belief further. Okay, you can be sincere in your belief, but also be sincerely 
wrong, sincerely mistaken. Um, my son believes sincerely that he should be able to eat a cheese quesadilla, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and th that will be healthy for him. He goes, that's a healthy snack. That's a healthy meal, Dad. I'm like, no, son, you can believe that sincerely, but it's just not true, okay? But then someone might say, all religions have a similar ethic, Eric, and a similar morality, and so thus all of these um, ethical obligations are pointing to the same God. So on this view, there could be more than one way to God. Well, let me answer that uh, with um, some C.S. Lewis here and what he thought about Christianity. See, he thought Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism uh, in particular, but the fulfillment of all religion at its best. Now, before you go, oh, wow, did C.S. Lewis believe there were multiple ways to God? No, he's, he's, he's track with him for just a minute here, okay? He said Christianity is the fulfillment of all religions at their best. See, to Lewis, it shouldn't surprise us that we should find some ethical overlap See, humanity being made in God's image, who is morally perfect in our morally objective standard, if we're made in his image, it shouldn't surprise us that we should be able to have some apprehension of the moral realm that we're all grasping at, even though in a broken way and in different ways, we're all grasping at what is the moral perfection, what is the moral degree that we should all be getting at here. And so he says this, I should find it hard to believe Christianity if it were not the case that there were some ethical overlap. I couldn't believe that 999 religions were completely false, while the remaining one completely true. For what was vaguely seen in them all comes into focus in Christianity, just as God himself comes into focus by becoming a man. Isn't that Beautiful. I love the way he says that. See, we're all grasping at the shadows in a human way of what our moral obligations ought to be. And we're doing it in an imperfect way and wrapping um, our human man-made religions around these frameworks as we're grasping at the shadows. But then it comes into focus. It comes to clarity in the person of Jesus. Well, what makes Christianity far more satisfying? Well, I think it boils down to what you do with Jesus. If Jesus is who he said he was and did what the gospels say he did and it culminated really in the final resurrection of Jesus after uh, being in the grave for three days after being crucified, then you don't actually even have to sort through all of the other religions because maybe you're thinking there's a plethora of religious worldviews. How am I to go and weigh the coherence of all of them? Um, well, you might still be um, on on the chase, even after hearing the coherence of Christianity this morning. But I think that once you see uh, what the differences between Christianity and religion, Christianity either stands alone or not at all. Because if Jesus really did what he said he did and came and died and rose again for us on our behalf, well, then that, that's kind of a game changer. Why? See, what's the difference? Well, because all the other religious worldviews have a prophet or a sage or a wise teacher who says, I've had a, a revelation, and thus the way you relate to God is by doing these things. I've had a revelation, so you guys need to do these things in order to relate rightly with God. But in Christianity, you have God who became a man. He broke into creation and says, I'm the way. Not doing these things is the way. I am the way. And so then it's historically validated on the day that he's risen from the dead uh, and uh, 
Thus, Christianity either stands alone or not at all. Let me read to you what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every other religious approach to God, one must work their way, earn their favor with God. This is why you either feel crushed by religion because you can't measure up or you feel pretty morally superior. And you're, maybe you're a skeptic this morning and you're watching and you've been burned by religion and you're going, yeah, that's my problem. I tried to get involved in some religious framework and pursue God, but I just felt so burdened and I couldn't measure up. They wanted me to do this and not do this and I ought to do this and you should be that. And I just couldn't measure up anymore. I couldn't keep up with all of it. And so I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to do this whole religious thing anymore. I'm just going to do what I want to do. You know, that might be you this morning, and I can totally sympathize with that. I think that a lot of religious worldviews do that. This is why we feel burdened, because we can't measure up. Or maybe you feel morally superior, and you're a skeptic, and you're going, yeah, that's my problem with religion. It creates these divisions among people, where you have the people who are in, and you have the people who are out. You have the people who are morally superior, and we're doing a pretty good job, and they look down their nose at all the people who aren't doing as good a job, and they're going, yep, see, I'm in, you're out. And you're going, yeah, that's my problem. But check it out. That is, and I I agree. I think religion does that. It creates these divisions among people. But that is not so in Christianity. In Christianity, see, the Christian understanding is that we're all made by God and for God in his image. But we've chosen to live for created things rather than for the creator. Thus, we've separated ourselves from what we were made for. So we experience frustration, seeking to make our lives whole with things that will never fill the gap, that will never fill the hole that God was meant to fill because you were made by him and for him. And so what? Are we just left in this frustration to figure it out on our own? No. He says this, God breaks into creation. He himself comes to live for us on our behalf and he measured up for us. He came In great love became a man to do for humanity what it could never do for itself. He in the person of Jesus then takes on the just wrath of God that would have fallen on us because we were supposed to worship him and live for him, but we've chosen to live for other things. And so there's this just wrath of God that should have fallen on us, but he says, you know what, I'm going to come and I'll take the wrath upon myself. See, it's utterly impossible for you to measure up to the perfect standard of who God is. And, and uh, uh, there's no way for you to measure up. On your best day, you're doing things rightly even, but you're doing it with wrong motive. And see, so we're, we're so fractured on the inside. And I think if we all evaluate our hearts, we know this to be true. So how are you ever going to make yourself right with God? You can't. Only a perfect God could come into creation and make us right with him. Only God could make us right with himself. And thus, it required that he enter into creation and reverse the consequence that humanity brought on itself. See, an example of how we approach God, the Christian understanding of how we approach God, is we approach him and treat him like a mountain spring. We recognize our need for him. Check this out. 
Um, we don't treat him like a watering trough. We treat him like a mountain spring, not a watering trough. If you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. You go get the buckets and you go get water, you go back to the trough. And you keep, you keep working hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction. You, recognize, you glorify God in your need, recognizing that I'm broken and I need you to do for me what I could never do for myself. This is a beautiful example that comes from John Piper. So if you're a Christian, don't you see what you're making of Jesus' sacrifice when you say there are multiple ways to God and that he's not the only one? Don't you see what you're doing of minimizing and, and bringing down the importance of what it is that he did? It's not that you can do things to make yourself. He said, no, I'm the way. It has to be only through Jesus. And do you see that there's no way for you to look down on anybody else or to think that you're morally superior or better than anybody else if you're a Christian? Because we're all made in the image of God and we're all fallen, we're all marred. I don't care what your social status is or whether, you're, whether other people think you're important or how much money you have. No, it, none of that matters. We're all broken, we're all sinners. Even if you're better than somebody else, you're doing it in a broken way and so there's no way for you to be morally superior to anyone else because we all are in need of the same Savior to bring us into relationship with God. And this answers the objection brought by some that religions are simply trying to control people, saying that um, this is your way of controlling people by saying that your religious framework is the only way to God. You're just trying to control people. And I actually can empathize with that view. I think that several religious worldviews do use their I'm the only way as, um, as a power play, as a, as a way of an, and a means of controlling people. But that can't happen in Christianity. If you're following Christian, if you're following Jesus to the fullest extent, that won't happen. Why? Because he had all power, all authority, all knowledge. He had everything. He was God. He, by him and through him, everything was created. And he breaks into creations and becomes nothing, becomes poor and serves his creation to the point of allowing his creation to kill him on the cross so that he might save them. You see, we all become like what we worship. And if we all become like what we worship, then you, we will just be being faithful to what Jesus said, that he's the only way. We will become like him. We will become like what we worship. And if we worship a God who had everything but became nothing on our behalf, then we'll become nothing um, on the behalf of others who don't even subscribe to Christianity. Maybe they have another religious worldview. Maybe they don't believe in God at all. But I will, um, if I'm following Jesus, we will sacrifice greatly in order to see the, the betterment of somebody else, in order to love somebody else, at great cost to ourselves because that's what Jesus did for us. So I hope that you can see this morning if you're going, man, I hate when Christians say that Jesus is the only way. I hope that you see that it's not a power play. We're trying to be faithful to what Jesus said. Furthermore, if the, the closer we are to following him and, beco and becoming like him, it it couldn't be further from a power play because it's about serving and loving at great cost to ourselves. 
And then it's all validated when he's risen from the dead after three days in the grave. I wish that we could even spend some time looking at the historicity and the truthfulness of the resurrection, but I can't this morning. But can't you see, like, that's kind of a game changer? You don't get the option of saying, no, I don't really like what Jesus said. I don't agree with that. You know, I can't get on board with him saying he's the only way. Well, it doesn't really matter. He rose from the dead. You kind of have to take that seriously. Well, then someone might say, But even if all of that is true, Eric, we'll never have peace on earth while religious leaders keep making these exclusive claims about what is true, spiritually speaking. Well, the problem with this statement is that it is a religious truth claim that requires faith and informs the way we live. Like, it's a a claim about what is true that requires faith. So it negates itself. Don't you see how it's circular reasoning? As soon as you say that, you've created a division among people. See, that statement sounds really inclusive. Oh, see, we just have to let all religions stand on their own, and, and we need to stop trying to convert one another. We just, we'll never have peace on earth as long as people keep making these exclusive claims about what is really true, spiritually speaking. Well, That itself is a truth claim that you're saying um, the people who believe this are in, the people who don't, like me, are out. And what will happen? You have the people who are in who will begin looking down their nose and looking with disdain towards the people who are out. Everyone makes exclusive truth claims. I'm not against exclusive truth claims. I'm about true exclusive truth claims. Um, And so the question for me then becomes... What set of exclusive truth claims bring about the most inclusive group of people? What exclusive claims about what is true, spiritually speaking, bring about, brings about the most inclusive group of people? Because we all have faith that informs the way we live. Even if that faith is, I believe that we live in a purely physical world and we're here by accident. And so there's no spiritual realm at all. And we all just need to live for what makes us happy. Well, that's a religious claim about about the reality of our world and what humans ought to be doing and not doing and claim about what humans are, you know? So does Christianity, does Christianity really make us more inclusive? Does that exclusive truth make us the most inclusive group of people in the world? And I believe it does. See, look at what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You're like, that doesn't sound very earth-shattering, Eric. Well, maybe you just heard the first part. Listen to it again. He says this, I give you a new command, love one another. You're like, yeah, I like that. But then you have to know a little bit about who Jesus was and what he did, because check out what he says next. He qualifies that statement. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So you must love one another. That means this. He was God, but like I said earlier, through him everything was made. He had all power, all knowledge, all authority, and he breaks into creation and subjects himself to creation. He, became, he had everything, and he became poor, and he became a servant, gave himself away for us. And so if we're to love like him, then I will give myself away to others and, and sacrifice for others and, and uh, at great cost to myself because that's what he did for me. Well, the question is, did it really happen? Has Christianity really done that? Well, I want to 
point you to some early Christian history here, and much of this will be taken from uh, a guy named David Bentley Hart, who wrote a book called Atheist Delusions, extremely helpful in recounting how Christianity has revolutionized the world that we live in, and we oftentimes live unknowingly in the benefits of what the early church accomplished for us in the first several hundred years of its existence. And so uh, I'd point you there, and I'd also point you to, um, if you know me, I'm a I love Tim Keller. I'd point you to The Reason for God or uh, his other book, Making Sense of God. If you're a skeptic, these books are extremely helpful, and he tackles head-on a lot of the questions that you might be having. And so let me point you to some of that early Christian history. Did, did Christianity demonstrate that it really is inclusive, that its exclusive truth led to the most inclusive group of people in the world? Well, let's look at some groups of people and how Christianity interacted with them early on. David Bentley Hart says this, in contrast to pagan religions, Christianity admitted men and women free and bound to equal membership and obliged them to worship together. They're not separating them. They're saying, no, we're all made in the image of God. Let's all come together and worship him. Celsus, the second century Greek philosopher who was an opponent of Christianity, said he regarded the uh, disproportionate number of women among Christians as evidence of Christianity's irrationality. Do you see how he looks down? This Greek philosopher looks down upon the value of women. He says, look, Christianity can't be true. Look at all the women who are a part of it. But why were there so many women a part of Christianity? Because Jesus brings about an equality and a dignity to women that they had not experienced up to that point. Roman Emperor Julian reprimanded the men of Antioch for allowing their wealth to be squandered by their wives in contributions to the Galileans and to the poor. Wow. He even complained that Christians had from the earliest days swelled their ranks with the most vicious, disreputable, and contemptible persons. Why is that? He goes, we're the in people. Those are the out people. And look how Christianity's filling their ranks with all these, all these wretched people. Well, why is that the case? Because Christianity goes, no, we're all made in the image of God. I don't care who you are, or what background, or whether you're male, female, what color you are, what socioeconomic standard you have. We're all broken, and we all need to become, uh, we all need to come into relationship with God. See how they bring about dignity and value to people that other wise wouldn't have had it. Hart says, there can be little question regarding the benefits that the new faith conferred upon ordinary women. In fact, it even insisted upon the provision for the needs of widows who were of all classes people the uh, most disadvantaged. Christian husbands were even commanded to remain faithful to their wives and were forbidden to treat their wives with cruelty, abandon them, or divorce them. Wow, that's kind of a good word for Christian husbands today, is it not? Hart describes how Christianity right from the start brought care of the widow, orphan, the sick, the imprisoned, the poor, to a level unmatched by any other religious worldview of the time. Well, how did it treat rich people? Maybe it brought, maybe Eric, okay, maybe it brought dignity and worth to people who were of, of lower, uh, uh, you know, who, who were looked down upon in their cultural, you know, systems and, and time. But how did it treat the rich? Surely it treated the rich and those with power with special privileges, Church fathers are recorded to have encouraged rich Christians that in order to follow Christ, one must love the poor and give to them without reserve. 
a third century document of church order, instructed bishops to never interrupt his service to greet a person of high degree. But upon seeing a poor man or woman enter the assembly, that same bishop should do everything in his power to make room for the new arrival, even if he himself should have to sit upon the floor. Do you see how it humbles those who think that they're somebody because of their power and status and money? It humbles them because they have to go, no, I'm broken in need of a savior just like anybody else. But then it brings people who are of little value and it raises them up and says, no, you have worth. You're made in the image of God. The Emperor Julian even encouraged pagan priests to imitate Galileans because they supported not only their poor, but ours also. Yet we don't even give to our own. The Emperor Julian goes, look, they, we, can't even, we don't even have internal resources for loving people who believe like we do. But these Galileans, these Christians, they're, they're, they're loving people who don't even agree with them. And they're sacrificing for people who don't even agree with them. It's beautiful. How about orphans? Hart says Christianity forbade the ancient practice of the exposure of unwanted infants, which is in most cases were girls. That third century document of church order I referenced a moment ago uh, describes the duties of a bishop, including the education of orphans aid to poor widows, and the purchase of food and firewood for the destitute. In 251, the church in Rome alone had more than 1,500 dependents on its roles that it was caring for, that it was going, no, even these babies who cannot care for themselves, they have the image of God on them. They have dignity and worth and value, and so we'll sacrifice to make sure that they can live. How about the sick? How did early Christianity relate to the sick? During the great pandemic plague of 251 to 266, Christians in the two northern great uh, northern African cities, clergy and laity alike, distinguished themselves by their willingness to care for the ill and bury the dead, even at great cost to themselves, even at the cost of their own lives, he says. Hart says, it's clear even that in the Eastern Christian Roman world, at least as early as the 6th century and probably earlier, there were free hospitals served by physicians and surgeons with established regimens of treatment and regularly trained staffs. Some of these cared for the ill and injured. Some were homes for the aged. Some devoted themselves to abandoned babies. Some were shelters for the homeless poor and some were principally orphanages. Why? Because the worth of people the worth of people who are made in the image of God. And it didn't just, they didn't just care about their souls and where their souls were going. No, because the whole person is body and soul. And they said, no, we want to care for the whole person. How did they treat slaves? The early church fathers regarded slavery as a mark of sin. Gregory of Nicaea in his fourth sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes in the year 379 Hart says this, that it comprises a long passage indignantly condemning slavery as an institution. He leaves no room for Christian slaveholders to console themselves with the thought that they were at any rate merciful masters. He calls the practice a challenge of God and robbery of God. Wow. Dignity and worth and value that it's bringing even to slaves. Why do I go through all of that? 
It's probably a little bit information overload. It's probably more than you even cared to know, but I want you to see how if every subset of people, early Christians, if they're really following Jesus, and we, if we're really following and becoming like the person that we're worshiping, then we will begin to look more and more like this. So maybe you're a Christian watching this morning, and you sense in your own heart, you go, wow, I do not disadvantage myself as much as I ought for the care of somebody else. I don't, I don't let it cost me greatly like Jesus let it cost him greatly. I need to worship him more clearly. I need to worship him uh, more fully. And if you're a skeptic this morning, I hope that you can see, wow, okay. You can't judge Christianity based on the, the couple of Christians that you know who are not worshiping him, worshiping Jesus to the fullest extent that they should be. One, we're all growing in progress. We're all growing to know him more and more. But secondly, that doesn't negate that, that if that were really the case, if we really do worship Jesus, that this will be the result in our lives. So just because the friend that you have didn't let that be the result in his life, it doesn't mean that it won't be the result in a lot of other Christians' lives who live it more truly. Let me conclude with the earlier statements from Jesus. John fourteen six. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many people hate this. It's not inclusive, they say. And then John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Most people love this. They go, oh, that's great. Hear how inclusive it is. But listen, you don't get the second part without the first part. You don't get the inclusive part without the exclusive part. And if you get the exclusive part, you'll become a part of the most inclusive, loving, sacrificial group of people the world has ever known. Do you see how they go together? Do you see how the the result of inclusivity flows from the truth that Jesus really is the only way and that if we come to know him, we'll be brought into right relationship with God. And as we're brought into right relationship with God, we become more and more like Jesus because I know I'm a sinner that's saved by sheer grace, not by anything I can do. And the effect that has upon my heart turns me into a person, turns me into a person that is full of love and full of gratitude and full of giving worth and dignity to others because that's what he did for me see how beautiful this is see in christianity people should be even if you're skeptic washing or maybe your friends you know who disagree with you um, and they they think it's ridiculous for believing that jesus is the only way they think it's ridiculous for believing in christianity maybe they think that but they should never be able to say they don't love me they can think all day long that what we believe is ridiculous but they should never be able to say that they don't love me Because this is the result that Christianity has in the lives of people. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if you don't know him, that this morning, hopefully some of the roadblocks have been brought down for you. And that you can begin to see that you need to pursue Jesus. That he's the one who can make you whole. Because this morning I believe he's already calling you. Because you were made in his image and he wants to know you. He's being patient and he longs for everyone to come to repentance. Everyone to turn from worshiping the other things that will never fill the the gap that was in their lives. He wants you to turn to worship him and to love him. Because that's where you will find wholeness. That's where you will find what you were made for. 
So I want to encourage you this morning, stop chasing after other things to fill your, the, the gap in your life. But if you come to know him, I'm telling you, everything changes and there's a miraculous event. How do you know you're a Christian? There's, a, there's an event, there's this moment where, where as you repent and you turn from those things and you say, God, I don't want to I turn, I turn from that. I know it's broken to worship those things. I need to worship you. I need to come to you. That's, there's this moment where you are placing, where the faith is transferred onto placing it on him and the forgiveness of your sin is gone and that you're, what Jesus said, it's like being born all over again. It's like you're a new creation. So this morning, wherever you're at, you take even this moment now and you turn, you, you just, you're a prayer away from coming to know Jesus and you say, God, I come to you through the person of Jesus, and I know that I'm broken, but Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need, I need you. I need your life to be accredited to mine. The perfect life you lived, I need it to be credited to me so that I can be in right relationship with what I was made for. And watch how as that genuinely takes place, how you will turn into a different person. And uh, if you made that decision this morning, we hope that you can let us know in the comments. We'd love to interact with you. We'd love to provide you with resources. Maybe you still have a lot of questions. Let me encourage you to stick around here in just a couple of moments because we're going to have a live Q&A with myself and Pastor Rich where maybe I raise some questions um, further for you. We'd love to interact with those. So put them in the comment bar in our live Q&A and we want to hang out with you and do our best to answer some of those questions. All right. Well, love you. God bless. We'll see you next week.